You are listening to a message recorded at Living Hope Church in Southwick, Massachusetts. We hope you find encouragement through God's Word today. Uh, This morning, as we talk about this upcoming year, we talk about 2023, one of the things that I often get asked about is what is the vision for Living Hope Church? What is important to us? What are we about? And I think one of the things that we must ask ourselves is what is our focus? Why are we here? Is our focus to be comfortable is our focus to be with like-minded people and fellowship with them is the focus of why we're here to worship is our focus to just listen to good preaching and teaching and all of those things are important don't get me wrong that's part of the reason why the church is here but the main thing that Jesus created the church for and that includes every church is to reach the lost. That is the only thing that he has given us a task and a job to do. And it's sometimes a task and a job that as most churches go along, we kind of forget that, that that's why we're here. And instead, we are just managing whoever's here. And instead, we're trying to cater to people that either are here or that we hope to be here. But the reality is, is that the focus of this church And every church should be to focus on reaching the lost. I want to share with you some simple statistics that kind of may will open up your eyes when you think about the world we live in. First of all, this, there are 7.7 billion people in the world. It seems like only a few years ago, there's only 6 billion people. Uh, We see the population growing rapidly, and it's growing rapidly in the southern hemisphere. We see that uh, the largest growth in the population is taking place in the southern hemisphere. The northern hemisphere, we see places like Europe and we see places like America. Population is dwindling, but it's vibrant in the southern hemisphere of the world. Of that 7.7 billion people, there are only 2.8 billion Christians. That's from all denominations. That's from Catholic, Protestant. It even includes in there Jehovah Witnesses and Mormons because they consider themselves, okay, they they mention Jesus, so they're part of that. That's 2.8 billion people in the world who are Christians. The population of Massachusetts is 6.5 million, but only 58% identify as Christians. 34% of them are Catholic. Only 9% of them are evangelical. As we look at the next slide, interestingly enough, the majority of Christians uh, that identify in this this state are uh, from Generation X and from the baby boomers. So only 10% of Christians are under the age of 25 in this state. So we're saying, you know, if churches are complaining about the fact that, wow, there's not younger people in our churches, why aren't we seeing younger people? It's not just a church problem. It is a widespread problem throughout the state because church and religion and faith seems to be an older generation sort of thing, and the younger generation doesn't have any use for it. I want you to think about this. Think about the population in our area. Let's go back to that previous slide. The population of Westfield, Southwick, and Grammy, the three areas that we draw the most people from, and the smaller places. If you're from Granville, we can probably count that on one hand, how many people are in Granville. I'm just kidding. I'm sorry. I don't mean to be mean. There's probably about 1,000 people up there. But if you count like Westfield, Westfield has 40,756 people. Southwick has 9,772 people. East and West Granby has 16,119 people. And you might say to yourself, so what? Who cares? 
The reason why we should care is because there are 66,000 people in the community in which we live. And of that percentage, when you think about LifeWay's research, if we look at the next slide there about the average attendance in America, it may be hard for you to see, but according to LifeWay Research, a group that studies changes within religion, 40% of the churches in America average an attendance of 50 people or less. 49% of America has churches about the size of ours. 27% of the churches in America have anywhere from 51 to 100 people in attendance. That means approximately 67% of all the churches in America are small churches. And when you think about that in relation to our community, that means in a community over 66,597 people, the total number of Christians in our area number only in the high hundreds to the low thousands. In a place of 66,000 people, only hundreds of Christians. We are hardly at the place we have, where we have fulfilled the Great Commission. We are hardly in the place where we are doing what Jesus empowered us by the Spirit of God to do. And it should awaken us to a reality. Listen, I love being our small church, but we need to get away from a small church mentality that says it's just us four and no more. Where, you know, where two or three are gathered and all the other cliches we use to, to excuse the fact that we're smaller and that there's fewer people here. When in reality, Christ died and resurrected from the dead and empowered us with his spirit so that we can go out and reach hundreds and thousands of people with the gospel. Not just through preaching, but by each person taking seriously Jesus' great commission to reach the lost People still need to know about Jesus. You can't just leave it up to Gene and Gary to do all the work. We need to pray that God gives us a heart for lost people. I want us to take a look at our verse of Scripture today. We're going to be in Luke chapter 16, verses 19 through 31. And if you can turn your Bibles there, you can read with me or you can follow along on the screen behind me. Can we just pray before we begin? Heavenly Father, I just pray today that you would open up our ears to hear, our eyes to perceive, and our heart to receive your word. Lord, I pray that you would enable me to speak it clearly as though I'm speaking your words, Lord God, through your voice. Awaken us to the realities of your truth today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This is a parable that Jesus tells his listeners. Luke 16, verse 19. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked at his sores. And the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. And the rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water to cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that in your lifetime you received good things, 
and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, there is a great chasm that has been fixed in order that those who would pass on from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And then the rich man said, I beg of you, Father, send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that they may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And the rich man said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And Abraham said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced, even if someone rose from the dead. Jesus uses the parable to describe what the afterlife is like. Scholars are divided as to whether this is just a parable that Jesus is sharing a story or if it's an actual event that Jesus is relating. But keep in mind that Jesus never wastes words. He always says things for a reason. Here Jesus wants to make clear the destinies of people who are good and those who are of bad. Those who believe the testimony of Scripture and those who do not believe in them. And Jesus speaks about what paradise is like and he speaks about what hell will be like. And he describes them in very vivid terms. Let's talk about the first thing he talks about, paradise. Or also known as Abraham's bosom. It's the place where righteous saints went after they died. This is where the patriarchs, King David, the prophets, and all who followed the Old Testament law would go after they died. It's also the place where Jesus said he would meet the thief on the cross after the thief professed belief in Jesus as they were both dying. Keep in mind, this is before the redemptive work on the cross, but it gives us a picture of what heaven will be like. What is heaven like? It's a place of comfort. It's a place of health. We see that Lazarus was afflicted in the life that he lived, in the natural life, but we see when he finally gets to paradise, when he gets to Abraham's side, the place that every Jewish believer hoped to go someday, we see that he's no longer afflicted with disease. We see it's a place of provision where he is well-fed, whereas Lazarus had nothing in the earthly life. He goes to this place, and he is no longer in need or in want. We see it's a place of blessings. We see it's a place of peace. Now, this Lazarus, who is different, by the way, than the friend that Jesus raised from the dead, suffered greatly as a beggar in this life. But he was a good man, and although he suffered much, he is met with relief from his earthly woes in this heavenly place. It says that the angels bore Lazarus' spirit up to this place. Overseeing this place is Abraham, who is the father of the Jewish people, and whom every Jew claims to be connected with both physically and spiritually. Now, let's talk about the other place. A place called hell, or in the Greek, Hades. This word is different than the Greek word for grave. The Greek word for grave is Sheol. But Hades evokes pictures of the place of torment from Greek literature. Lazarus was carried away by the angels to paradise, but the rich man was buried. And when he awoke and raised his eyes, he awoke in hell. I want you to take note of what isn't there. Gone are his riches. Gone are his wealth his delicious food and comforts that he had when he was alive, gone also are anybody else that was with him. He is there alone. It proves to us that you can't take the riches of this world with you 
And in, whether you are in uh, a good place in life or not a good place in life, when you go to this place, you will go alone when you die. The picture that Jesus paints of what hell is like is disturbing and terrifying. And please hear me when I say this to you, that most of the people here know that I'm not a hellfire and brimstone preacher. I'm not that kind of preacher. I'm an encourager. I'm an uplifter. But there are times that if we need to understand what it's like to rescue the lost, we have to understand what we're rescuing them from. And a picture of what we're rescuing them from is a motivator for every friend, family member, and person you care about. This is not the destiny that we want for them. Some things we learn about this in verse 23, it's a place of torment. He's in torment and in flame. It says that hell is a burning place of fire and flame, but I want you to know it wasn't created for man. It wasn't created for people. Matthew 24, 41, Jesus said that they were cast into the lake of fire which was prepared for the devil and his angels. It's not where man belongs. Man was created in the image of God. Man was created to be in service to God and to, to caretake the world that he created. But hell is a place that's been prepared for those who live in rebellion towards God. Lucifer was the original rebel who rebelled against God and tried to overthrow God. And so everyone who is in rebellion against God, whether they are consciously in rebellion against God or not, this is the place where their destiny lies. Those who live selfishly like the rich man did are in danger of this place. It's a place of burning fire and sulfur. Jesus compared hell to the valley of Ben-Hinnom, which was a, a garbage dump outside of Jerusalem where people would go and dump their trash and they would burn the trash all day long. And Jesus said that Hell is like the valley of Ben-Hinnom where it's a place of fire, a place of smoke. It's a place of decay. It's a place where the worm never dies. And that sounds pretty awful, doesn't it? Like think of driving past the water treatment and the uh, landfill on Route 5. But think of it only instead as though it's on fire. <laughs> like in flames. Like it smells bad enough, but imagine it being completely engulfed in flames, and maybe you get a picture of what that's like. We also see this as a place of great thirst with no relief or water. The rich man begs for Abraham to send Lazarus, the man who he mistreated in life, to dip his finger in cool water and just come and dab it onto his tongue because he was so thirsty and so much in pain. We see that hell is a place of regret. Verses 24 through 26, Abraham reminds the rich man of how he prospered in life while Lazarus suffered and he did nothing to alleviate Lazarus' pain. So now Lazarus is comforted and the rich man suffers. It's important to note the things we do in this life, if we ever end up there, the punishment is not temporary but permanent. The punishment is permanent. We all see it's a place of separation. The rich man can see Lazarus and Abraham and can see and communicate with the rich man, but there's a great chasm that separates them. He cannot go to them, and they cannot go to him. Perhaps one of the most torturous aspects of this hell is not just the flame, but the fact that he could, sees what he missed out upon, and he can never, ever go there. Imagine seeing that in the fire and saying, look, there's people drinking water. 
And there's people in comfort, and there's people in happiness, and there's people in joy, and he's looking across this chasm in complete torment, saying, looking at it, just longing for just even the smallest comfort from that, and not being able to go there. How awful it is to see what you're missing out on right before your very eyes. All the more reason for us to make sure that we know where we're going before we go. What we believe and what we do with our lives definitely affects where we will spend eternity. We also see there's no second chances in hell. Verse 27 and 28. So the rich man, realizing there's no way out for him, immediately turns his concern towards his brothers and fathers. Look at verse 27 and 28. Then he says, I beg you, Father Abraham, to send Lazarus to my father's house. I have five brothers so that they may warn them lest they also come to this place of torment. You see, there was no second chance for this rich man. There was no way out for him. There's no way for him to go back to his father and brothers and sisters. And so he said, well, send Lazarus. Surely if Lazarus goes, they would believe. Why? Because he wanted them to avoid the same fate that he was suffering. But there are no second chances after we die. There are no do-overs. You can't go back and undo what you did in life to end up in a better place. You can't even go back to earth and warn people. Not as a ghost. Not as an apparition or spirit, despite what you might see in movies or on those TV shows that are on at 1 in the morning. There's no people that die in this life that can come back. You go to one of two places. That's just as simple as it is. And there's no way for them to be sent back to you to warn you or talk with you or interact with you. There are no voices of people speaking beyond the grave to warn. Once you have died, your place and your input in this world is over. You are now on the other side of eternity. You will either spend it in heaven or you'll spend it in hell. This verse could not be more clear. But the rich man wanted Lazarus to go back from the dead and warn his family. And Abraham denies his request. Not because he does not care about the rich man. Notice he calls him son. And he has compassion towards him. But he says, it, the reason why he doesn't do it is because he says that the testimony of the scriptures are sufficient enough for repentance and salvation. He says, you have Moses and they have the prophets. You have the law and the prophets. You have the entire testimony of the Old Testament for them to believe. Let them believe that. And, and, and the rich man's like, you don't understand. You don't know my father. You don't know what my brothers are like. They, they won't believe, but if you send someone back from the dead, that's a miracle. And that's miraculous. And, and surely they'll believe. Verses 29 and 31, Abraham says no. He said, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will be they convinced, even if someone should rise from the dead. And that seems incredible to think about. If you saw someone rise from the dead, you'd be like, okay, what do you have to say? I'm kind of curious now. What do, you, what do you want to tell me? But did you know that when Jesus raised not this Lazarus, but his friend Lazarus from the dead, that the Pharisees got even more incensed and angered with Jesus. And if you read that story carefully afterwards, it says that they even plotted to try and kill Lazarus after he was resurrected from the dead. I would say that you probably don't believe if that's what you're trying to plot. Saying, okay, I, Lazarus raised from the dead, that's great. How do we get rid of Lazarus? Because he's 
testifying to this Jesus. Sometimes we think that miracles are enough for people to believe. Sometimes they do, and sometimes they don't. But really, if a person's hard, heart is hard, they are not going to listen no matter what they hear or what they see. You may even share testimonies with your family. Like, God healed me from this. He did this amazing thing in my life. And they're like, yeah, sure, whatever. If their heart is hard, they're not going to believe regardless of what they see or hear. Apart from the Holy Spirit working in someone's heart and bringing them to a place of repentance and salvation, no one can change. This parable is a sobering picture of what waits those who do not know Jesus as Savior. But this is not the only place where Jesus says something like this. Listen, Jesus was full of grace and truth. He is communicating the love of God to everyone he comes in contact with. That hasn't changed, but the love of God means nothing if you don't understand what he's saving you from. If you don't understand why he went to the cross, you're like, that's nice. People say, well, if they, people just know about the love of God, then they'll accept God. If people don't want God's love, they're not going to accept it. If they are finding love in other things, the love of this world or the love of someone else, they don't need God's love, and they're certainly not looking for it. But to understand what God has saved us from makes all the difference in the world. Jesus was full of grace and truth, but he makes it very clear this is what will happen to people who do not accept him as Savior. The parable of the weeds, for example, if you look at the next slide there. Parable of the Weeds in Matthew 13, 37 through 42. He talks about a field where there's grain and there's weeds. And the grain and weeds grow up alongside each other. And at harvest time, when, when the farmers harvest the, the wheat and the, the weeds at the same time, they separate the good from the bad and they burn the bad. And he says, it's just like people. Grain represents good people who are righteous people. And weeds represent evil people who do evil things or do the selfish things. And they're separated. And he doesn't just say, well, this is a parable about, uh, you know, just this is a nice parable about farming. He uses these words. They will be thrown into a blazing furnace where there's weepings and gnashing of teeth. Just in case you were thinking that he was just talking about weeds. The parable of fish in Matthew 13, 47 through 50, he talks about fishermen who catch fish. And as they catch fish, they catch fish that are clean and they catch fish that are unclean and, and seafood that's unclean and they separate them out and the ones that are good they collect in baskets and they use and the ones that are not good they take them and throw them in the fire even as we look at uh, the parable of the wedding banquet in Matthew 24 and 25 it says that those who went to the wedding banquet were welcome but someone who was not wearing wedding clothes in other words they weren't redeemed they weren't wearing the white robes of ones who had been redeemed it said they were cast out where there was weeping and gnashing of teeth and it's a warning to us, and it's a warning to all to not to be outside of the kingdom of heaven when the time comes or when Jesus returns. God's grace is displayed in this. You are living in a time where salvation through Jesus is available. You've been given a lifetime to make a decision, 80 years if you're fortunate. You are living in a period of grace. Christ has yet to return, and the events of the book of Revelation have not yet unfolded, but now is the time to choose. To choose to live for Jesus and stop messing around. Because once you die or Jesus comes back, you can't say, well, wait a minute, Jesus. Hold on. I'm not quite ready yet. I didn't know you were coming now. It's kind of like you getting ready for church and you leave the house at 10 instead of coming here for 10. 
You know, oh, that's now, okay, and, and we're late to those things. Listen, when it comes to the things of God, it's like he's, he's, there's not going to be any opportunity for you, you to, someone to wait for you to get ready. You are either ready or not ready. So be ready all the time instead of saying, well, I have to get myself ready. The window is open now, but there will be a time where the window is closed. What's the point of all this? What is Jesus' point? Why is he talking about this? His point is that the lost need to be saved. 2 Peter 3, 8 through 10 says this, Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that the, the, uh, with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. And the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Peter writes this passage uh, to address those who scoff at the idea that the Lord will return. By the time Peter is writing, Jesus had already been ascended up into heaven for probably about 30 years at that point in time. And so some people are saying, well, where's the promise of his coming? When is he coming? Is he ever coming? And Peter's like, be careful when you say stuff like that. Because just because it seems like his promise is afar off and he's not coming, remember that time means nothing to the Lord. A, year, a, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. He can t- come anytime he wants, but he's waiting. And you know what he's waiting for? He is uh, patient, not wanting that anyone should perish, but all would come to repentance. Jesus also says in the Gospels as well, it says this gospel of the kingdom will be preached to all corners of the world and then the end will come. It doesn't mean that everyone will believe. It just means that everyone will have a chance to hear. And I truly believe that when the last person on this planet hears the gospel for the very first time, that scripture will be fulfilled and Jesus will say it's time. Everyone has had an opportunity. Everyone has had a chance to hear. So the time is now. One thing that we don't have a lot of, church, is time. And you might say to yourself, well, pastor, why do you preach so long? (laughs) To remind you that you don't have much time. Two scriptural truths having to do with time. First is that you never know when you're going to die. You might say, I hope to die when I'm in a ripe old age after I see my children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren. I hope to live to be 80, 90 years old and still have my wits about me. And you might have that time, but then again, remember too that life is short. People die all the time unexpectedly from heart attacks or cancer or fatal accidents. You don't know when your day is going to be. So rather than wait and say, well, I'll get right later when I'm older just to have that fire insurance just in case what Pastor Dan is preaching about is true. But you don't know when that day will come. Secondly, we don't know when Jesus will return. He could return at any moment and any time, and we need to be ready for that. We need to demonstrate that there's no time to wait or waste when deciding to follow Jesus and be saved. Jesus even admonished his disciples to work while it is still day, because night is coming when no man can work. And this refers to the Lord's work, bringing in the harvest before the darkness of this world becomes too great to do it out in the open. Now, there is good news about those who are lost. Heaven rejoices when the lost are found. When one sinner comes to repentance, 
all of heaven rejoices and shouts and praises the Lord. But we can only rejoice if we are looking for the lost. There are parables, three of them, that Jesus talks about in the book of Luke that have to do with lost things. The parable of the lost sheep. In that parable, he talks about the lost. And the people that he's talking about, he's talking about people that don't know Jesus, people that don't know the kingdom of heaven. And in the parable of lost sheep, the shepherd leaves the 99 and goes after the one. The 99 represent those who are faithful. The one represents the one that's either far from God or has wandered away from God. And it says the good shepherd himself goes and looks for him. And until he finds him. And when he finds him, he brings it back with great rejoicing. Then there's the parable of the lost coins. A, a, a woman loses her silver coins, which are, which are her day's wages, and she looks everywhere for them. She tears the house upside down. She, she sweeps things clean until she finds it because she recognizes how much she needs that money to survive. And when she finds them, she says she calls her neighbors, and her neighbors come and they rejoice with her that she found those lost coins that she needed. Then there's a the parable of the lost son the prodigal son. And here we see the father is waiting and praying and watching and looking and hoping for the prodigals, the ones that have wandered away to come back home, to be part of God's family, to be part of that family once more. And that God is showing a picture of the heavenly father himself through this parable, that the Lord himself is looking for those that will return to him not to condemn or judge them, but to welcome them back home. And each of them has that phrase in there. And so it is in heaven that heaven rejoices over one sinner who repents. So every time you lead someone to Jesus, every time you pray with them for salvation, it says that heaven throws a party. And you're not invited to that party now, but oh, that day when you get there. And the people that can thank you for what you did in their life and the rejoicing that will take place in heaven. The rejoicing that will take place in heaven when you realize your household, your family members, your friends, your neighbors, the people that you care about, that you're kind of just casually putting off the idea of this eternal truth because you don't really want to think about that day. Can I challenge you to think about that day today? Can I challenge you to think about where this will lead if they don't know the Lord? You will never see them again. Ever. And they will be in a rough place. Imagine their reaction when they said, you knew and you didn't tell me. Why didn't you tell me? I didn't want to offend you. I didn't want to get into an argument. I didn't want you to ostracize me. I didn't want you to stop being my friend. Oh my goodness. How selfish of us. Have you ever had to deliver bad news to someone? But they needed to hear it? Sometimes we do. They may be mad at you at first, but they'll appreciate you later. Usually things come back around. How much more so with this? We need to love people and take the Great Commission seriously. We need to be concerned with people's eternal destiny and the awful eternity apart from God that they awaits them. We need to share the message of Christ 
with all who hear it, whether or not they choose to believe it or not. Not in an obnoxious, heavy-handed, and overbearing way, but in a loving, gracious presentation of God's truth. We need to love people like that and do everything we can to reach them. And one person can't do it alone. This is something we must do together. I want you to look at a couple of quotes from some of the, the great missionaries and evangelists of history. John Knox, a Scottish preacher and reformer, had such a heart for his homeland that his continual prayer was, Lord, give me Scotland, lest I die. Do you know that John Knox died as a martyr because people weren't willing to listen to him? But it didn't deter his heart. David Livingston, who was a great missionary to Africa and actually an explorer, too. If you want to read his story, it's a really cool story about someone who just went into Africa as an explorer, discovered waterfalls, discovered places, named them. And while he was along the way, he would go to villages and share the gospel with those who needed to hear it. People recount that he was attacked by a lion at one point in time and somehow survived it, though severely maimed by it. And he didn't go, that's it, I'm not doing missionary work anymore and leave. He still continued to do it. They said that his skin was like leather from the sun because he was in the African sun so much. But it was the words of missionary pioneer David Moffat that inspired uh, David Livingston to become a missionary. And this is what David Moffat said because he was talking about his time in ministry in Africa. He said, many a morning I have stood on the porch of my house and looking northward, I have seen the smoke arise from the villages that have never heard of Jesus Christ. And I have at different times the smoke of a thousand villages, villages of people who are without Christ, without God, and without hope in the world, the smoke of a thousand villages, the smoke of a thousand villages who do not know God. And when David Livingston heard these words, he said he couldn't sleep at night. That, that quote kept ringing in his ears until he chose to become a missionary himself and reach the lost for the gospel. D.L. Moody, the great 19th century evangelist who forever changed this country with his preaching, said this concerning the lost. He says, The lost will never be reached and brought back to loyalty in God until the children of God wake up to the fact that they have a mission in the world. And if we are true Christians, we should all be missionaries. He also said this about the kind of preaching we offer. He said, I cannot preach hell unless I preach it with tears. And that's so different than what you hear today, isn't it? There's almost like a sick delight in the heart of some preachers to talk about the destinies of those who do not know God. There's a heavy-handedness. There is a uh, recklessness. There is a carelessness that is sometimes brought forth by those who preach about it. But if we're going to talk about the destiny of those who don't know God, it should break our hearts. It should cause us to weep. It should make us think of those that we know and care about and those who don't know God and make us say, you know what, I'm going to do it. And I may not be the most eloquent speaker in the world. I may not know the scriptures like a pastor or a preacher or teacher does, but I have a heart and a concern for them and a love for them. And there's no better person to deliver this news than you. Because you're their friend. You're their family member. They care about you. They listen to you. You have an audience with them. 
It says it's okay to bring it as long as you're bringing it with grace and truth. This morning, as I've talked to you about this today, I say this not to frighten, although there's something about the fear of consequences that is very motivating. There's something about recognizing that there is consequences for our actions that kind of keeps us on the straight and narrow. And there's something about hearing these sorts of things that moves and motivates our heart to say, you know, people need to know. And it's not just the pastor or the evangelist in your congregation that's responsible for it. It's all of our responsibilities. Jesus gave the Great Commission to all of us so that we might fulfill it, to go and preach the gospel to all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded. That's the desire that Jesus is for us and what he has given us to do. This morning, as we close in prayer, will you just bow your heads with me today? Church, you know my heart. I don't say things to scare us. I don't say things to manipulate. But there's a reality here that if we don't get a hold of, we're going to lose some people in our lives that are very important to us. You say, well, I have time. I'll do that next time around. But Life is so incredibly short at times. It's important that we take the time to share with those people. Even if it's just simply something as simple as that, you know what, you need Jesus. You need Jesus. They'll say, yeah, yeah, I know. You should come to church with me sometime. Well, I know. Don't stop asking. Don't stop inviting. Don't be obnoxious, but be someone that continues to offer the opportunity for someone to know Jesus. I want us to close in prayer. And I want you to think about the people that are important to you in your life. I want you to think about the people in your family, the people who are friends of yours, people who are neighbors and coworkers, people that you hang out with and enjoy their company. Wouldn't it be great to enjoy their company in eternity forever and ever? Wouldn't it be wonderful to be with them? Think about your boyfriend or girlfriend, your, your husband or your wife. Don't you want to spend eternity with them? We need to have a heart that Jesus has for those who don't know him and the words to speak and the Holy Spirit's help. As you think of those things, I want to pray this prayer with us today. And there's lyrics from a well-known song called Hosanna. And the prayer is this, heal my heart and make it clean. Open up my eyes to things unseen. Show me how to love like you have loved me. Break my heart for what breaks yours, everything I am for your kingdom's cause as I walk from earth into eternity. Lord, we pray today, help us to have a heart for the lost people we know. The lost is not somewhere, just people on the foreign mission field. It's not just people that in the city that's far away from us. There are lost people all around us people that will be eternally separated from you, even people we care about. And so, God, I pray that you would give us a heart for lost people. Give us the words to speak. Give us the compassion to bring it. Help us to do in a way, Lord God, that they can hear it and receive it. And Lord, may this motivation just continually be in our hearts as we serve you. Break our hearts for what breaks yours. And Lord, I just pray that we would see people reached 
for the cause of Christ, reached for the gospel. I pray that there would be not only those of us, Lord, who share, but, Lord, we would see progress. We would see people come to know you and be saved. So, God, we ask you, give us boldness, give us courage, give us your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. We invite you to join us Sunday mornings to worship with us. We are located at 267 College Highway in Southwick, Massachusetts. For more information about Living Hope Church, visit us online at www.livinghopechurchag.org.